Great. Thank you so much, John. My research is on the demobilization of uh, former resistance members in East Timor, and part of its contribution to the peace-building and state-building literature is in the fact that it looks at local actors and local governments rather than international actors, per se, where most of the attention has been. So when it came to be talking on this panel um, about the UN, um, I decided to go sort of look at what my research has to say about that engagement. So it's not the core focus of my work, but I'm going to be talking about um, the United Nations and their role in post-conflict reintegration in East Timor. So the overarching question that came up in my reflection on this topic was how do United Nations-led disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration processes perceive former conflict actors and why? And I'm really using this word perceive, this idea of optics, imaginaries, all of this to really um, think about these, uh, this type of engagement. And I'm going to use the concept of blank slates as integral um, and going to use the fo focus on the case of East Timor. So I'm going to answer this question through using this idea of blank slates. So East Timor, most of you should be familiar more or less with um, the case. Small half-island nation had been a Portuguese colony. Uh, and then there was a 25-year occupation uh, by Indonesia, which ended due to changes in uh, Indonesian politics, Asian financial crisis, all of this in 1999 um, with a referendum for independence. So the United Nations and East Timor is a really interesting case. And in some ways, this talk is about the UN at 60, not the UN at 70, <laughs> um, which is sort of the nature of academic research. And so East Timor and Kosovo, which you'll hear about later, are really sort of the high watermark of the UN as transitional authorities, really running the country. So entering into agreements with international um, uh, financial institutions, full legislative authority, changing the time zone, that kind of thing, executive powers. And the final major mission, UMIT, closed in 2012, although agencies are still active in the country. And there's been a lot of debate over whether UNTAYAT, the transitional administration, was a failure or a success. Um, some of, you know, calls, Chuck Call says, well, there was a redeployment um, of peacekeepers in 2006 with the crisis, so maybe this wasn't a success. And then there's been recent really good work by Tansy that says actually what led to this um, crisis in 2006 really has a lot do, more to do with elite politics than about UN action, so you can't lay it on the feet of the UN. But that's actually not what I'm going to be focusing on. The idea of East Timor as a blank slate, I think, is really important for understanding UN action there. The UN SRSG, Sergio Dumelo for, for Yuntayet, he apparently viewed East Timor as, quote, a pretty perfect petri dish. And this is a quote from Samantha Power, who's now the UN ambassador for the US, her book on, on Dumelo. And it's a pretty powerful metaphor. Think about what makes a good petri dish. It's been autoclaved, nothing's alive, right? It's, just a pure blank slate. Um, so what happens when you're thinking about a country in those terms? So it's sort of this terrionolius thinking, no man's land. It's not an unfounded or ungrounded assessment. East Timor, following the 1999, the, the withdrawal of Indonesians in 1999, went through incredible amounts of violence. 70% of the infrastructure was lost. 
Um, there was a brain drain that happened, um, both sort of in the diaspora over the 25-year occupation, but then also 70,000 um, Indonesian civil service servants left. So it's sort of this question of who's running this country, who do we have, there's no judiciary, there's no infrastructure, this place has been wiped clean. Um, the other piece that ties into this blank slate thinking on East Timor is the idea of this can be a test case. And this was alluded to actually in the first panel. You know, this is a really simple, potentially simple um, uh, area to work compared to you know, a much bigger uh, geographic area, more complex um, dynamics, a civil war versus a national liberation movement. There was a lot saying that this could be a really good case of trying out new ideas. Back to this idea of a laboratory, a petri dish. So DeMello brought in this quote, A team, um, from the Balkans who'd been involved in Kosovo and this idea of experiment. We can try something new in East Timor. <coughs> um, yeah. Oh, and the final piece is that part of this sort of blank slate is that you're not, you're, you're focusing on very few interlocutors. So you're seeing most people we can engage with, there's nothing really left, so maybe there's only a few actors um, <coughs> to work with. So my interest is really about how does this kind of thinking, how does this framing of a conflict or of an intervention change security sector reform processes and particularly uh, EDR processes. And so the idea is that there's two main effects. The first would be a lack of consultation because you don't see yourself as having a good partner. And the second is that you might have a lack of context. Um, so Jarrett Chopra, who was involved in the Untai administration, has probably written most scathingly on its impact and its work said that there was basically no inclination to share power, um, consultation was perfunctory, so that's problematic, again reflecting this blank slate thinking, and then this idea that there's a lack of context. Um, Jackson, Paul Jackson is writing more generally, um, not about the East Timor case specifically, but it's relevant here where he says blank slate thinking is dangerous and illusory concept, um, and it leads to designing interventions that ignore existing norms, structures, and previous history. So there's some risks involved to these ideas. Um, I argue that the result is sort of this fallback onto what um, Robert Moga calls a DDR orthodoxy and sort of a one-fits-all uh, approach. So now turning to the specific case. Um, before the referendum vote for, um, well, against uh, autonomy within Indonesia, which sort of de facto was a vote for independence, the Falintil fighters who had been the main, um, the core of the resistance movement went into a cantonment first in four different sites with about 600 people and then um, consolidated in one site with about double that, which ended up being for about 19 months. So they were all concentrated in this camp which kept them out of the um, sort of the last stages of the conflict in a very effective manner actually. Incredibly poor conditions in these camps as you would expect. Um, they were there for much longer, informal camps, food, all these issues, housing conditions, you know, quickly deteriorated as more people came in. Um, internal tensions also surfaced, so this had been quite a diverse um, resistance movement with lots of different factions, lots of different groups that were connected and allied but often worked quite independently. And so there's been interesting work saying that in these cantonments it was the first time that these groups were actually put together and these guys didn't necessarily get along. So it surfaced a bunch of tensions um, and then growing numbers of people. The UN had an unclear mandate whether or not to engage, which was part of what 
exacerbated this problem and why this became such an extended cantonment. Um, and so whether or not they could be involved in the demobilization and reintegration um, wasn't, wasn't clear from the onset. But I think a bigger piece or a complementary piece of that problem with the mandate was the sort of securitization of these guys who were in the cantonments and sort of the climate of distrust. Um, you know, the UN basically, the, the reports from the former combatants was that they were treated very poorly. Um, and I argue that this comes from a couple places. One is this idea of, you know, the UN learns from previous experience and then maps on previous experience to interventions. And so there's an argument that Angola anxiety partially drove this, this footing. So having had a very uh, difficult experience with remobilization, criminal activity in Angola, that this has influenced every sub subsequent UN DDR process. And then also the Kosovo experiences, which again were um, quite complex. Um, and this argument has been made that in East Timor, these models, these peacekeeping approaches, were applied inappropriately to what essentially was a decolonization uh, situation. You had a national liberation movement that had been successful, so sh how should you treat these people who'd been part of that movement? Do you treat them as, as their ex-combatants? Do you treat them as the founding fa fathers of the nation? Do you treat them as a decolonization process? These, all these questions surface. And so going back to this idea of blank slate thinking, I think what, what was missed in that process and in the UN engagement was recognition of the importance of status and identity for the people who'd been part of the resistance movement. So Tower Matanruak, who is now um, the president, he said we were treated like dogs by, by the United Nations. Um, so there was a lack of understanding of the resistance histories and their associated mythologies and these histories and these people as the basis of nationalism, national identity. Um, Timorese's approach reintegration programs primarily through a valorization approach. So the higher up you were in the, in the conflict, the more important you were, the more you should get. Whereas that's a very different way of thinking from like a basic needs approach where that your current situation, you know, your current level of deprivation dictates what kind of benefits you should receive. So there's already um, a difference between UN thinking, which was generally around a basic needs approach, and Timorese thinking about this is about identity, history, valorization, nationalism. And you see these problems um, in the case of DDR in Mozambique, where this idea of blank slates, we're not, we don't want to engage, we don't want to think about what was there before, comes up with giving these kits of hose, seeds, and a bucket to the highest level commander. And this just isn't going to fly. It's considered insulting. It's problematic and probably highly ineffectual. The other piece, which I'll talk less about because I'm running out of time, is the idea that what happened in these cantonments in Ileo when um, the former combatants were returned home was what was considered political demobilization. So uh, loyalists from one political faction basically were reintegrated into, or integrated into what became the new military, where others were left out. Um, and there's been compelling arguments that this mode of demobilization was integral to uh, created the roots of the 2006 crisis, for those familiar with that. Um, and one argument of why this happened was that the UN was so dependent upon this one group of interlocutors um, this, this piece of the political elite, that they could not protest 
against this sort of political action, this political demobilization, where one leader got to choose who's in and who's out. Um, and what I document in my own research is the use of these DDR processes to consolidate power networks and spread resources, but that's for another day. Um, moving onward, what I suggest as an alternative to a blank slate thinking is what I'm sort of calling hesitantly as a continuities approach. So really to look at the story of continuities of power across conflicts, not to look at rupture. What you see in East Timor is that a group of guys, well, okay, you can start with the Portuguese colonial era where you've got white mestizo elites which form the elite of the country during the Portuguese era. Those students become the power elite who then are protesting against the um, occupation. They become the leaders during um, the Indonesian occupation. Uh, and then in the uh, post-conflict period, they become the leaders of the nation. So you're actually seeing this very unbroken line of elite power through three different um, conflict eras, rather than seeing blank slates, autoclaved petri dishes, all of this. You're seeing these continuities. So these processes can be highly conservative <laughs> Um, and these networks of resistance, of elite power, of families um, that were not perceived by the UN or at least not taken into account when they say, oh, there's no civil servants, there's no judiciary, there's nothing there, there's nothing for us to use. Well, you say, actually, there's this really complex, robust, and lasting um, system of power that's continued, or there's been continuities through these different eras. And here from I think uh, something that's useful to think about comes from organizational theory, which is what's called the March of Dimes um, theory, or March of Dimes approach to understanding organizations. And the March of Dimes, if, for Americans in the audience, it was a anti-polio uh, organization. And so the idea was that when polio was eradicated in the US, you'd expect that this charity, the March of Dimes, would close its doors. We've eradicated polio, great. Work done, let's stop. And of course that didn't happen. The March of Dimes now looks at childhood birth defects. And the sort of lesson from that, from, this, from the March of Dimes, is that the number one priority of organizations is to keep going. It's not about achieving an end. And so this analysis has been used in terms of terrorist groups, but I think it's equally useful in this case, where these resistance networks, these um, power networks, they have an imperative to keep going, and so when you know, you've achieved your end, you're independent, um, there's going to be reasons for these, for these organizations to keep moving. And so I go back to Chopra, where he says there's a powerful, profound difference between anarchy, defined as the absence of a national executive, legislature, and judiciary, which is this blank slate, and the actual breakdown of indigenous social structures. So that's, those are two very different things. So really just to my last slides, returning to my research, I did a um, representative survey of former combatants in East Timor using clusters across the country. 44% um, of my respondents saw the resistance is still going, which is pretty amazing because this is 10 years after the end of the conflict um, in, a, in a place that's been relatively peaceful and where the main antagonist <laughs> is no longer part of the scene. And so back to that idea of continuities, um, huge importance of status and identity for people who had been part of the conflict and how those don't just end with the end of conflict. These are incredibly important. 
and then how these status and identities and how the involvement in resistance organizations are actually tied to patronage networks, which people use both for political access, resources, as well as welfare benefits and support. So they play a, uh, quite a complex role. So just the final slide as I hit 15 minutes. Um, when we think about blank slates and blank slate thinking, it's really important to ask who do these metaphors serve? What type of interventions do they allow? And what are the liabilities involved? And the case that I've talked about here of the Fallentilla Reinsertion Assistance Program in Timor-Leste says that you come with these real liabilities if you're not picking up the ideas of power networks, not understanding what's going on. We really need to refocus on continuities, <coughs> not ruptures, um, and how uh, conflicts and the, the social structures that they build um, continue throughout uh, different phases. So that's that. Thank you all um, for listening. <laughs>